0: If you're curious about it, then you're going to find out what those like, two or three insights are about that thing. And typically, the deeper you pursue that curiosity, the more narrow it gets. And then you're like, you have a holy shit, eureka, aha moments. And those aha moments can be really great sources of content. Welcome to another episode
1: of Hype Fury Presents. In this episode, I talked to Justin Michaelay. Justin is a former submariner of the US Navy and became a speechwriter for some of the top US generals. He has some great insights to share on what he learned during his speechwriting career. In this episode, you'll learn how to improve your writing techniques and how you can keep people's attention by not only focusing on the argument you're making. My name is Yannick, co-founder of High Fury, and I hope you enjoy the show. So Justin, a lot of people know you from your Twitter tweet storms as they call it. Tell us a little bit about your backstory, how you landed here in, on the Twitter sphere.
0: Sure, yeah. By the way, thanks for inviting me to talk with you today, Unique. I've been listening to the pod and it's terrific. So I appreciate the time. Yeah, I started Twitter, I would say, in the late 2019, and I probably had two or three hundred followers. And I had been on the platform since 2009. So 10 years of lurking, 10 years as a voyeur, didn't really participate online. And I think the reason for that is related to ego. Maybe I thought people cared what I had to say. And that's what always holds you back. Also, I was in the the US Navy for about 11 years as a submariner. And then in the latter parts of that career, speech writing for government officials, maybe we'll talk about that And I think as a result of being in the government, especially at high levels, senior levels of the government or supporting uh, senior leaders, I felt like I shouldn't put myself out there, certainly not in a way that would reflect poorly on that institution or those institutions. And so that, I think, was an excuse because these days, you know, everyone at every level of the government is tweeting and they ought to be, you know, it's part of a vibrant republic. For whatever reason, I did not though I was constantly observing and studying people who were doing this. And then I decided for really no reason other than the fact that I had launched a startup, which failed. And I think I was just a bit more comfortable in my own skin. I said, I'm going to start posting my opinions out there. And it turns out people didn't really care what I had to think about, what, what I had to say about politics. They responded much more to my summaries of people that I would find interesting. And I'm happy to tell the brief story about how I did that with Jack Butcher. And that sort of set me on on a path.
1: All right. So I listened to a couple of your uh, interviews and you spoke about the submarine life. I thought that was really interesting because what you told me is that you actually do 18-hour days and you only sleep four hours a day. How do you even manage that?
0: Yeah, there are three shifts on a submarine. And This has been a subject of experimentation in the Navy for decades, changing between 24-hour days and 18-hour days. And the idea is what is the most attentive that you can be for the longest amount of time you can be fully engaged and attentive. And there are experiments on this. And so you could have three eight-hour watches where you're the officer of the deck and you're on a periscope and you're paying attention to everything. And the question is, are you more attentive for six hours or eight hours? And then it really is a matter of sleep and the interplay between that length of time and how much time you can sleep. And it turns out if you sleep four hours or four and a half hours every 18 hours, it's equivalent to sleep being six hours or six hours and 15 minutes in a 24 hour period. You're sort of resetting the clock. But there's something interesting about that. When you do that for a, a, a long period of time, say seven days in a row, or seven 18-hour periods in a row, you would need a thing called an equalizing battery charge. If you charge a battery on a submarine, and every submarine, even if it's a nuclear-powered submarine, has a battery, you can charge it once a day via a diesel generator or the reactor, and that's fine. But the chemicals need a much longer charge every seven days. And I've always thought that's funny because uh, you can go for a long period of time without much sleep, but then you need you know, a nice long sleep every, every week or so. And I call that an equalizing battery charge. But yeah, I mean, I could talk, it's a unique lifestyle on a submarine. There's about 135 people on the sub and it's about a football field long for the US fast attack submarines, which I was on. I was based in Connecticut and you go, it takes you five days to go across the Atlantic. You could submerge off the coast of the US, off the East coast and not resurface until the Suez Canal, And so that's really interesting. You drive all the way through the Mediterranean, submerged underneath all the big shipping vessels, like the the Ever Given that got stuck in the Suez. (laughs)
1: That's funny. And so, okay, wow. So you actually adjust the amount of time you have in the day. You go back to 18 hours and then it's doable to get off on four hours of sleep.
0: Yeah, yeah. So your circadian rhythm is not dictated by the sun because you can no longer see the sun. You're 500 feet underwater.
1: You have the lights, the red light and the blue light or whatever.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. There's red lights to sort of signal to you what time of day it is uh, in, in real time, wherever you are in the world.
1: Cool. So while you were submerged, you also did a lot of writing. Was it something you did even before your Navy career or did you start writing when you were submerged?
0: Yeah, I, you know, the submarine is a highly technical field. It's engineering based. It's a systems engineering, nuclear engineering, chemical engineering, all of that stuff. And that was the hardest academic thing I've ever done, is qualifying for that kind of community. What I was much more comfortable with, and always have been, is writing and the humanities. So I majored in political science. I was a writer, I think, sort of naturally, even in high school. I wasn't all that great, still improving day by day. But I think I just gravitated. When I was underwater, I would publish these long emails back to my family, and it Ended up being sixty pages by the end of the six month deployment, and I called it "Bubbles from the Deep," <laughs> you know, "Reflections from the Submarine" or something like that. And they were just inane observations about life. There wasn't anything really profound in them, but I found myself naturally in my free time writing, and you basically couldn't stop me. Like if I had a computer next to me, I was going to write something about. But I was living on a daily basis.
1: And so you did a lot of writing when you were on the submarine. Then I think every couple of years you almost have to change assignments when you're in the army, the navy. And then did you actually choose to become a speechwriter for a high-profile guy or girl? Or did that land in your lap? How did it go?
0: Yeah, I was teaching politics at the Naval Academy in 2007 and for a few years was reflecting on whether I should get out of the Navy or stay in the Navy. And I ultimately decided to get out. So I was a few weeks away from leaving the Navy in 2009. And General Petraeus at the time, David Petraeus was the commander of US Central Command in Tampa, Florida, which had responsibility for the Middle East. So the war in Iraq, the war in Afghanistan and so forth. And he had a Rhodes Scholar speechwriter that they you know, had a terrific relationship and she was just outstanding. And so he was trying to replace her because she was rotating to her next assignment and he couldn't find the right fit. So somebody sent me a note and said, hey, you ought to put your hat in the ring for this. And this is a situation where, you know, preparation meets opportunity because I had published a number of articles just prior to this. And I had just a, I would call it like a book of material to send him within 24 hours. So I sent him a packet of everything I've written. And he said, send me something that's funny. So of course I'm not all that funny. My brothers are funny. I didn't get that gene. And because he said, look, it's easy to write the substance. It's hard to write the humor. And even a four-star general has to maintain the attention of an audience. So I tried to write a few jokes, write something funny. And I think I even sent him a chapter of that bubbles from the deep and ultimately he hired me. The next day I got a call from his executive officer who said, hey, would you stay in the Navy if the general asked you to join the team and become his speechwriter and i said yes so within 7 days i had moved imagine you know you're living happily in Annapolis Maryland and they say you know in the next 6 days you're going to move down to Florida and on my first day in the job he said look we're going to give a speech to an international audience in London speaking to our NATO allies about the state of the CENTCOM area of responsibility in the Middle East in a, by the end of the week, I'd like a 10-page, single-spaced speech on that topic, stretching from Syria in the west to Afghanistan in the east, from Iran in the north down to Oman in the south, sort of encapsulate U.S. strategy, U.S. military strategy. Of course, I had no idea what I was doing. And so you learn very rapidly to assimilate information and talk to subject matter experts, compile everything into one place, and then boil it down, resolve the underlying ideas, you know, convey a message, an unmistakable single headline to an audience. So channeling your boss intellectually is really the job. It's listening more than it is writing. And he ended up telling me later, he's like, I didn't hire you because I thought you were a good writer. I hired you because you were an excellent runner at the Naval Academy and you went to Princeton and I could teach you how to write. But I just wanted to, you know, go for runs, and which which we did. Uh, he was, you know, exceptionally gifted editor, so he helped me learn how to write, and I helped him go for runs in the morning. Did
1: you take that as a compliment or not? That's pretty interesting.
0: Turns out it was a statement of fact because I had a lot to learn. I thought I was a decent writer, but it turns out that, you know, he even brought me into his office one time. He said, I don't think you understand what a theme sentence is. Every paragraph should set the tone and the topic for the next three sentences. And if I like dropped my entire speech on the ground, I could pick it up and know exactly where I was in the speech because you, you know, he said a great speech flows from one theme sentence to another. And so I've had to learn those lessons the hard way. And I wish I could show you the first several speeches that we iterated back and forth that he just absolutely tore them up, tore them to shreds. There was more pen on the paper than there was ink from the printer. And, you know, for that first speech that I've been talking about, I think we went through 10 drafts of that speech, which was typical. He gave a baccalaureate address at a university the prior year, and he ex- was experimenting with a different speechwriter, and they did 34 drafts of that speech. So that was, I would call, a failed speechwriting process. But, but
1: how do you get in mind of a guy like that? Because you can't spend 10 hours a day with him. He doesn't have the time for that.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, no, not at all. You do go to every one of his meetings or the majority of his meetings. And he was a speechwriter for two four-star generals earlier in his career. And he believed strongly that to do the job well required presence around him. And he further said, look, if you're a lieutenant who's an O3, the third rank up in the officer corps, and I'm 10 ranks up, you need to raise the sights of, you know, if you're looking down the barrel of an M16, like look up and get out and look down sort of strategically. In other words, you're not going to help me unless you assume mentally the responsibility and the outcome of the organization. So your job is not to write for me, it's to write with me, to help me think. And so that I think is perhaps the second most important lesson. The first most important lesson is when you're speech writing and writing in general, it's not about you. It's not about the speechwriter, it's about your audience and what you're trying to achieve. So those were the sorts of things, and I forget exactly the question that you asked, but basically to channel someone intellectually requires really inhabiting their headspace and reading everything they've ever written, listening to everything that they've ever said. And that's actually what I do on Twitter these days. If I'm going to do one of these big idea summaries, all you really do is what I used to do as a speechwriter is just get in someone's head. And it's possible if you listen and observe closely enough to really like boil down what their worldview is, or to reverse engineer their philosophy, their like how they approach any problem, and they have their unique point of view on the one hand, and their unique voice, their authentic voice on the other hand. Marrying those two things together is what it requires. Yeah, I, I think it's a like the best creators are the keenest observers. Is I think what I would say. And fortunately, if you're a public figure, you've got a lot out there. I could quickly come up to speed. But one last point about this. It requires intense intimacy intellectually. It requires investment emotionally in the relationship. And so you can only do this for so many people. So I did it for Petraeus. And then I did it for Mattis, Jim Mattis. And then I did it for Leon Panetta at the Pentagon. When I had gotten out, I was a political appointee at the Pentagon. He was the secretary of defense. So learning... Three voices in a row in a four-year period or five-year period requires a lot of emotional investment. And Panetta's last day, Chuck Hagel became the next Secretary of Defense. And I said, look, I'm out. I can't inhabit the head of a fourth principal.
1: One thing you mentioned uh, in another um, interview was that it's sometimes even more important to like keep a certain sentiment than it is to keep a certain argument. Elaborate on that, because I think that's a really interesting thing.
0: General Petraeus at the time in, I think, 2010, was giving a speech on the aircraft carrier that's just outside of New York City or just on the the Hudson River. And I can't remember exactly what it's called. USS, it'll come to me in a second. But anyways, a big black tie gala affair, $1,000 a ticket. Dr. Henry Kissinger was going to be there. And Petraeus was getting honored with an award. And... The audience was the titans of Wall Street and the, the, you know, the titans of industry. I was sort of struggling. He brought me, we're on uh, the government aircraft back from some other event. And he's like, let's sit down and talk about the speech that we're going to give next week. I'd like a draft in a few days and let's sort of get on the same page about the audience. But he said, look, there's not really much to think about substantively. It's not difficult to write this speech once you understand that it's all about thanks We are simply thanking a variety of audiences for what they have done. And it's on behalf of the troops that are in Afghanistan, in Iraq. And so if you start with the sentiment of thanks, that will unlock the rest of the speech. And I believe that every speech is like this, even when we would write congressional testimony for Jim Mattis as SecDef to talk about the Pentagon budget. There's still like a sentiment rooted and grounded in history and you're trying to like get people to look up from their desks. You know, otherwise they're busy, you don't really reach them. And Mattis would always say, hit them in the head and the heart at the same time. So the sentiment really, I think, is where things originate. You know, what do you want to make someone feel? And then hook them with the intellectual stuff. So we gave a speech in Germany with Jim Mattis. He, he wrote this speech and it was about the importance of NATO and alliances. And It did begin with a sentiment even though that's sort of a a dry policy point that you're trying to make or argument or you know the audience you're trying to persuade is let's like hold strong as an alliance we started it by talking about how brutal world war ii was and that these alliances nato in particular grew out of the brutality of that experience so he had a way of crisply articulating how difficult and how trying that must have been and why, like why that thing exists in the first place. So yeah, even dry policy things can start with a sentiment.
1: And so what are like types of sentiment you can use on Twitter that will really hook people in?
0: Yeah, I think I just constantly fail at this. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I can talk all day about my speed training experience. I'm not sure it's translating all that well. The other day, Naval was on Clubhouse and Naval Ravikant, who's well-known venture capitalist, angel investor and so forth, deep thinker. And man, oh man, he has the ability to connect. Every word conveys meaning and it is a pleasure to listen to him. And I tried to take the transcript because I had recorded it, which was authorized. If everyone in Clubhouse says on stage, authorizes a recording and Naval started the whole thing by saying, is everybody good recording this? So I had the benefit of a transcript, but that transcript, it was a 90 minute conversation. That transcript was 15,000 words and 15,000 words would be like 500 tweets. <laughs> so <laughs> what I did was just live with it. You live with the content. I probably listened to that 90 minutes several times and then read the transcript several more times. And then you get sort of the gist of, the top six real points that he's trying to make, and you distill it down. And typically, and this is a crazy thing about conversations, even this conversation, we're sharing ideas back and forth. And you would think it's an efficient way of sharing ideas because we're listening to each other. Turns out every conversation really has about 15% of true, like unadorned substance. The true distillation of the conversation you and I are about to have would be seven minutes, not 60. And so you take a 10,000 word transcript and it is possible using not a blunt instrument, but a scalpel to take it down to like 12% of what was said. And then it really pops out at you exactly what the ideas were, like the purest form of an idea is. And so I don't really on these summaries start with a sentiment. So I'm maybe contradicting myself. I start with like, what is that irresistible idea that those nuggets, uh, if you will, from any given conversation, and try to put those for front and center without anything else. And it does strip away that sort of emotion that I'm conveying right now in my, in my voice. But I think those threads are powerful because there's nothing else but the ideas, and I think that's um, maybe the value to them because, you know, somebody didn't have to listen to the Bology Tim Ferriss conversation for three hours and 45 minutes. They can just read 200 tweets and they get it.
1: Well, well and that's exactly why Twitter is such a great platform because you have people like you that spend a lot of time on really going down to the that last 12% of really like the meat, the good stuff. And then, yeah, finding a way to convey it in a, in a, in a great way and, hopefully getting a lot of engagement.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's fun. I don't know how I will someday monetize all of this because it turns out, you know, if you stay up till two in the morning, several straight days doing these threads, which is what it takes, like at some point I should do it like um, Melina Pompliano is doing and, you know, put it behind a paywall. (laughs) But maybe that's in the future. Like Sahil Bloom is a terrific on Twitter and he does these great threads on finance and, and other issues business. He's a great storyteller. So, you know, he doesn't try to monetize in any form or fashion. He's like just adding pure value. And so I think I'll stick with that for a while. I do have a newsletter where I post the post version of these tweet storms. But again, I don't think it's well branded. So I'm going to have to consult with you.
1: Still a lot of work in progress. Same here. Same here. There was another interesting thing I heard you talk about was about somebody hundreds of years ago who wanted to be a really good painter. Tell us that story.
0: Yeah. Samuel F.B. Morse wanted to be a great painter. He wanted to become a master painter. And he had that strong conviction that if he studied under another master painter, then that master painter could teach him the ins and outs, the techniques, the tactics, the procedures, the strategies to create great paintings. And I'll get to the metaphor of where this is going in a second, but let me just continue telling the story. So he goes overseas and this is the same Samuel Morris who invented Morse code, just as an aside. And he studies under a noted master painter. And the gentleman said to him, why don't you go away and paint something and come back to me and show it to me. So of course he goes away, spends some amount of time drafting the painting and he's proud of it. And he said, I think this is great. I'm gonna show the master painter and get some feedback. And takes the painting, the master painter says, no, 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 don't show it to me. Go away and fix a blemish, something that you notice that is wrong with this. And then he goes away, doesn't get to have the satisfaction of showing his painting to the master painter. And he finds a number of large blemishes, major problems with the painting himself, and then improves it, and then brings it back to the master painter. And this goes on and on, time after time after time. And I think you know where I'm driving at. Every time he went back by himself with no feedback from the master painter, he found major portions and then increasingly minor details to fix, to improve in some form or fashion by himself with his own eye, his own judgment, his own discernment. So there was a point that he reached where the painting itself became close to a masterpiece with no feedback from a master painter. And... That was the story that General Petraeus told to me several months into my speech writing experience where he said, look, don't show me a speech when you have just completed the first draft. You should be like Samuel Morse and never waste my time in essence. But more importantly, you're going to learn more about writing from the process of writing than you are from me, even though I have a lot more experience than you. And another way of putting this is there was a guy named Perry Parker I believe is his name he was a, for 40 years he taught rowing at Yale I believe and he at the end of his career was retiring or had retired and there was a gathering of all his former rowers and they were all in rapt attention cuz he's a terrific storyteller he said whatever you learned about life did not come from me it came from the sport of rowing. Rowing, the discipline of rowing, is what taught you those lessons that you have then carried forward throughout the rest of your life. So I think those two metaphors combine to say, obviously, it's learning by doing, but you can do better than you think simply from your own sheer effort.
1: That's funny. The reason I'm, I am I wanted to talk about this is because I counsel – a couple of students they do like internships at companies and i'm like you know I, I counsel them via the university and i had a conversation with one of the students today and he had a conversation with the chief the entrepreneur at the, at the company who was doing his internship and the only thing the guy said was well just make it better just improve it and he was getting the student was getting really insecure because of that because he was like i'm like a third year student what the f can i still improve and that's the reason i wanted to touch on this because it's really interesting on because on the one hand it is so important to do the work and there's always room for improvement but it can also backlash because you have to have a really you know strong back to take that and then again go back home go back to your painting and start looking at it again and and, and seeing what, what can i improve what can i do instead of relying on somebody else saying, hey, that cloud needs some work, you can do this and this and that and blah blah it's a really it's a great metaphor and I think that the the people in life that go the furthest will, are, are people that can take that feedback just saying, well just make it better, just make it better And they just then find ways of I don't know, I'm going to look at another masterpiece and see what they did and I'm going to do this and just they constantly think of new ways of improving themselves.
0: Yeah, let me add to this, though. I don't want any listener to not listen to the second part of this. Nothing that I have ever written, even if I think it's great, can't be improved. It's nowhere near a masterpiece. And the cool part about writing as a part of a team is you learn very rapidly that even if you think what you have created is good, it can be massively improved, like 10x improved. And I was a speechwriter for David Petraeus and others. But there was a whole team of fact checkers, other speechwriters, the principal intermediaries, people who give you an external fresh set of eyes on things. And being a speechwriter is like having your ego surgically removed every single day. It is an intense, for lack of a better term, like physical exchange, punch to the gut every time you show your work to someone else, and they they make it way better. But you, I just want to note for the record that you do need that tight feedback loop with other people who care about the details and who care about you know, the big muscle movements that can make something really sing. I think what a lot of people don't realize is how much hard work some of these things take. It's not talent necessarily. It's not experience only. It is just a persistence in the editing process. And it's a collective editing process. It's not just singular. So I don't, want to, I don't want to leave the idea that like some soul genius somewhere can like pay attention close enough to their own work and make it great. You need, to, you need to put it out there into the world. And another way of saying this is a premium product is the product of refined products. So you could have your first draft, which is like the first product, and then you refine it into a second draft. And you combine it with another refined second draft, and then that becomes premium. So anyway, we could talk all day about that, but I wanted to make make that secondary point.
1: That's interesting. I think this could even be a business like our business, or it's something that people would pay for or that you know you can form groups around on Twitter saying, hey, look at this draft, I made this, how can I improve it? And then you return the favor by doing the same to their uh, stuff. You know. Yeah,
0: I think there is a cottage industry that is burgeoning right now as the internet has gone peer to peer, everyone globally. And these wonderful communities that are popping up are incredibly impressive. And, you know, Ship 30 for 30 with Dickie Bush, uh, Nicholas Cole's write the Ship, Rite of Passage. These are all terrific communities of writers. And I identify strongly with all of the members of those communities. And I would hope that it's built in, the that the feedback loops are built in, because I know a lot of the Ship 30 for 30 atomic essays are posted. But I wonder if there's something behind the scenes, I should talk to Dickie about this, where there's feedback even prior to that, because you're it's so quick that like every 24 hours, you're posting a new atomic essay.
1: There's not... I've been in a the cohort. There's not really. You can ask for feedback beforehand, but it's really. It's more like the process is the way. But it's not. There's feedback if you ask about it, but that's not really formalized into the cohort stuff. Yeah, he's not
0: promising that either. It said his promise is that you know his his process will get you writing flat out and simple, and that and that's the the first and foremost thing that you have to do. Right,
1: and so. Somewhere along the line, you started really getting some traction on, on Twitter, and I think what really you know got you started was that you started looking at you know how do people improve their writing, and I think you you downloaded like uh, three thousand of Jack Butcher's tweets, and where he started just talking about you know what that he went to a restaurant or something or did something with his friend too is, you know, six word sentence where other people would take three tweets to convey the same type of uh, information. Uh, tell us a little bit about that.
0: Before I forget, let me just say, you know, relay something that I observed just in the past few days that Jack did. And I don't know whether these two things are connected, but it's possible that they are. So I distilled the conversation with Balaji who spoke with Tim Ferriss for that epic legendary podcast recently and took it from 40,000 words down to 7,500 words. It was like a 200 tweet thread. But one of the themes in the thread was that we're going to become a network state. So you don't have to be geographically proximate to someone to be ideologically mentally connected to them. And Bology probably had like 280 words or characters, rather, to describe that phenomenon of people connecting ideologically wherever they are geographically. And I thought it was pretty well put. And that precise idea, Jack, the following day, tweeted four words, four total words, two lines, that said exactly the same thing in one tenth the characters. So I wonder, I half wonder whether he read the thread, saw that, and he's like, I can do this better. He is a genius at this. And I'm, that supports my point. If that's true, it supports my point that the best creators are the keenest observers. Like He could see something, put it in his own words, take ownership of it mentally, and then relay it back to his community in a pithier, more impactful way. And he is just an exceptional communicator. But I wanted to study how he became so persuasive online. And at this point, I had several hundred followers. I reached out to him. He is, I don't know how he makes the time, but he engages with people regardless of their follower count and still does today. He just meets you where you are as an equal. And I just find that really refreshing. And I think the best Twitter accounts do that. You know, Eric Jorgensen grows. There's uh, quite a few folks who will not allow their personality to change Or their methods to change if they get bigger. Packy McCormick is a great example. Like, he'll tweet about random funny things that, you know, an account of his size normally wouldn't. He just like has this conviction that he's going to be the same person. But what I did was download Jack's tweets, all of them, stretching back to 2013 and all the way to the late 2019, early 2020. And I said, How did he do it? How did he evolve this declarative voice? Was it always there? Did he always have this sort of um, distinctiveness? to the way he communicates? And the answer is no, it's developed over time. At the same time that he was becoming an exceptional designer at the corporate advertising world from one job to the next, rising the ranks, he was also refining his voice. And the more he would communicate, the more the feedback taught him in a virtuous positive spiral, virtuous circle. And so I said, my goodness, there's one lesson is that, In order to get better, you need, obviously, to start sharing. You don't need to select your niche or your voice at the outset. You just need to start sharing. Uh, And that, I think, is universally true. And there was another lesson that escapes me at the moment. But, yeah, so that's the basic thrust of, oh, the second lesson is once you start sharing and sharing more prolifically, it is possible to reverse engineer a person's worldview simply from their Twitter timeline. And what sharpens is not necessarily the, the distinctiveness of the voice. What comes into stark relief is the philosophy, the worldview, the point of view gets more distinct as well. So the, the marriage of the point of view with the distinctiveness of the voice is what makes these people really break out. I call them 10X creators. And like once I learned that, because it turns out Jack says the same thing 20 different ways or the same 20 different big ideas in thousands of different ways. And I said, if it's possible to do that with Jack, I could do that with David Perel, I could do that with Matt Kobach. And then I don't really wanna, it's not like it was a Twitter growth hack. It was like, what is unique about their worldview? And what are those big ideas that they're saying over and over and over again? So decoding that became like the challenge. So that's the curiosity that I've been chasing. Yeah,
1: it's interesting. And it's getting noticed. So what's happening now in your, in your world with writing?
0: Yeah, goodness gracious. So I feel like I am a man spinning six or seven different plates and they're all going to fall down. And I am racked by guilt because I'm supporting some of these creators who are terrific and I want to perform for them. But yeah, so I am a part-time senior writer at Gumroad and that was the result of a cold email to Sahil Lavingia, the CEO and founder of Gumroad, I just said, I want to profile successful creators on Gumroad. And he hired me because he said, look, your timing was perfect. And meaning I want to invest more in this area and and creating great content and, and highlighting, spotlighting these creators. So that has been a wonderful experience to get behind the scenes at Gumroad. And that takes up a good portion of my mental bandwidth and headspace in a given week. I'm also helping three great creators I respect and admire create products behind the scenes. Now, Eric Jorgensen is building a wonderful course on leverage, and that is exploring the big idea of Naval Ravikant's book that Eric distilled over a three year period. Ding of Asalo, who has a really unique and strong point of view about making small bets and increasing the probability of those bets so that you can create a living in a way that doesn't like join the rat race. So I'm I'm doing a little digital book with him and Matt Kobach and I have for a number of months been sort of batting back a, a draft of a book that he would like to come out with. That is a bit more long form version of his, the philosophy that he articulates and advances on Twitter. And then in addition to that, I'm in three cohort based courses simultaneously, which is killing me, frankly, but they're all great. And it's just like, how can I participate in the most fulsome way possible? Right now, the first one is by Maven, uh, Wes Cow, and Gagan Biani. They are just incredibly thoughtful about the future of education and where online education is going in particular. And they have a philosophy that I agree with fully that results. Are the, the byproduct of building with a cohort of other people. So these cohort based courses. So they have a cohort based course on building cohort based courses if that isn't meta enough. And so I'm building a course that will then help creators like Matt and Eric and Jack and others. I want to sort of take the next level of emerging and breakout creators, find them and assist them. Like I want that to be my position in the creator economy is like that layer of creating the next all-stars. I don't necessarily wanna put myself in that category yet. I just wanna help as many of them as I can and hopefully I'll learn in the process and maybe get better myself. And then finally, the on-deck community, which has just hit like a bolt of lightning over the past 12 months. And there's two people that I'm sure you're aware of, Andrew Barry, who's a great course creator, and Robbie Crabtree, who's a terrific public speaker and he has a course on performative speaking. So I'm currently crushed by that depth and breadth of those projects, but that lays it all out. Hopefully that wasn't too long of an answer.
1: No, 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 no. And you actually just launched your course, right?
0: Oh yeah, yeah, I just announced it. So it will begin after Memorial Day in the United States, so Mm -hmm. in early June, and it will stretch through early July. So it's a four-week intensive cohort-based course And I just announced it, hit me up, DM me. If you are an emerging creator that is ready to to create a product, but you're struggling with that because it is hard to get all of your ideas out on paper, structure them, package them into a product, a digital product, like an info product, a course, a digital book, something like that. I wanna help you do that. And uh, I want your fellow peers in this cohort to do that. So like the best way to think about it is if you wanna go live with a product by July, we will force you to do that. The process will force you to do that.
1: Cool. I think that's going to be fun for a lot of people. I think that'll help a lot of people launch their product.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, there's so much expertise out there that deserves to be out in the world. And I believe strongly that there will be a unbundling, a lot of higher education. And like the thesis that I have right now is you could create a curriculum by yourself that's just as valuable as an MBA And this is a little bit trite. A lot of people say like Twitter MBA and so forth. But there are a a menu, a bucket, a basket of courses. There's another word I'm looking for. But anyway, you could put in one basket six or seven different cohort-based courses or self-paced courses. And the sum total of the cost of those courses would be $10,000, say, or 12 or 15 at very max. If you include expensive ones like rite of passage, which are valuable, and that fifteen thousand dollars at max would be a much better investment of your time because a lot of them, if you choose them right, are teaching. I would call it the modern, the modern They like prepare you for the modern economy, the new economy. We actually sort of coined this phrase for Jack Butcher's course. Like this is the field manual for earning a living in the new economy. And I'm forty about, a little over forty, and The world as it exists today is nothing like in any way. It's like fundamentally altered from when I was born. And there's any number of ways that people have observed why that's the case. But you're just not mentally prepared for how the internet has changed things. And it's changed things more in the last 10 years than it has in the previous 30 or 40. So I just feel like it's like very hard for people of a certain age to adjust to these new realities and these courses like force you to, it's like Jack says in the first few lines of his course, he's like, I'm going to convey to you a simple, but expansive idea. And like, I just love that phrase, a simple, but expansive idea. And he takes that simple, but expansive idea quite seriously. It's almost like Charlie Munger takes the principle of inversion quite seriously. Eric Jorgensen is taking the principle of leverage quite seriously. These aren't new ideas necessarily, but you know, As Naval would say, and as Eric eloquently says, all of the new fortunes are made with these new techniques because there's an army of robots that just didn't exist in centuries past. So like crystallizing your ideas in code or in media is a way to make a fortune that that just never existed in the same way 50 years ago. And it just takes, I think, society a long time to adjust. And there's people that are crushing it right now. You can just see they're like the ones that are producing media at a prolific rate are just growing like pomp he's like let's overwhelm the algorithm you know that's sort of the strategy cool
1: and for people who don't have like the same amount of time you spend on creating tweets i'm interested in what you would advise them to do how could they become a better writer on twitter how can they find their voice quote unquote how can they you know get more engagement on twitter
0: I had a conversation yesterday morning. This is kind of cool. Jamie Rousseau, who uh, is the author of The Underdog Paradox and just a terrific figure on Twitter, hosts every Wednesday morning, I just learned this, a coffee hour, just a conversation on Twitter spaces. And I like how he starts it. It's a safe space. It's an inclusive space to just talk about our journeys. So I joined yesterday just because I saw it. I happened to be on my phone. And there was a, a wonderful growing creator, named Jareen. And we were all talking and I just thought that it's not unlike Naval has said all along. It's pursue that curiosity that you have about anything. And I think what people mistake is the degree to which you need to pursue that curiosity. And, you know, a guy like Matt Kobach would say, don't just tweet about wine, tweet about 1980s vintages bordeaux wines like go deep into one really small narrow area now a lot of people say you know niche yourself down get super narrow and super focused and stuff like that but i think it all goes back to the fundamental thing with which is learn learn about something you're curious about like really go down a rabbit hole like the, a lot of these accounts all they're doing and the secret is not apparent on the surface but the secret is like they have gone down a Wikipedia rabbit hole in ways that no one has like explored. They're like really deep into something. And that becomes valuable to people because if you're curious about it, then you're going to find out what those like two or three insights are about that thing. And typically the deeper you pursue that curiosity, the more narrow it gets. And then you're like, you have a holy shit Eureka aha moments. And those aha moments can be really great sources of content. But nothing, like you can't in a vacuum produce content without some why behind it. Like, and that why is a product of your experiences and everyone is unique. And like Sahil would always say, like, you know, the secret to like getting over that imposter syndrome is to lie to yourself a little bit and just to like allow yourself to share some of those curiosities. And then that voice that tells you to stop just shuts up if you start getting the the wheel the flywheel started. So yeah, I mean, if I like if you said to me you're going to go from whatever followers you have now to zero followers, that would suck. But I think if I just followed things that I'm super curious about, I could build back up again. And I have the advantage I think of having a decade and a half of writing experience behind me where I really try to get a high level of polish to these threads where like, there's not a lot of wasted words. And so, you know, nothing replaces the persistence and hard work really as well. Like it's embarrassing to admit how long I spend on some of these threads. And what sucks is when I see somebody tweet something that you know, took the fewer than 10 seconds and they get like 5,000 likes in 10 seconds from these tweets. And that's sort of like, deflating sometimes, but I think it's a little less reliable. Some of these one hit wonder tweets, but like, man, you're like, ah, I, you know, a lot of my tweet storms will flop. They're starting to flop a little less. Cause I guess I have a little bit more engaged or a little bit bigger audience, but sometimes they just totally fall on their face and it's very hard to predict which ones flop and which ones don't. And that's obviously trite as well, but not worrying about that. Like <laughs> not like, I think maybe my secret sauce is that I have had my ego so damaged over 15 straight years of speech writing (laughs) that like i'm okay when a tweet flops
1: i guess how you can improve that is when i create threads i don't do that often enough i need to do that more i always have at least 10 people who i send that thread to so the moment it's published i then ask like my inner crowd hey can you take a look at this if you like it please retweet it and i've seen that that really really helps so that might be you know Send me your send me your thread as, as soon as you've published, and i uh, if I like it I'll I'll retweet it. And I think if you do that to with more people like your inner circle, that really helps because I don't know if that's if that's innate to the, the, the Twitter algorithm, but yeah, like the first couple of minutes are really important for tweets to take off. Then you you just see the impressions gain and the yeah,
0: absolutely. That one thread of Naval that really took off for me a couple of weeks ago. He found it right away. Like he found it, liked every one of the 80 tweets, and then retweeted it and retweeted several of them. And that all happened fast. So then it, the algorithm starts to amplify it. And so that was just, you know, when you've got something pretty quickly, or you know, when you don't have something pretty quickly, which is, it is what it is. And I heard you say in a recent podcast, you know, there's little tactics and tips where you could just retweet it a little bit later and things like that by yourself to get it amped up.
1: If you see that one of your tweets is really taking off, a lot of people then retweet that first tweet in the thread a couple of times in the first 24 hours.
0: Yeah, Yeah. well, I didn't have many followers. I did a summary, a big idea summary of Matt Kobach's timeline. And I did another one of someone else's timeline. And I could tell instantly that Matt Kobach has mastered how to make the algorithm work. So, for example, I gave him a heads up and I said, is this okay? Like, does this summarize your worldview? I I sent him the draft the night before. He's like, this is great. Like hit me up with it or go live with it in the morning and we'll make it fly. So I sent him the tweet. I alerted him to when the whole tweet storm was live and he retweets it. And then he retweets it again as a quote tweet with like, this makes me look good. And I like things that make me look good. And then Three more times that day, he retweeted it. So it got massive exposure for me at that time. You know, like at that time, it was so thrilling to get all these notifications. And, you know, in the early days when you have 500 or 300 followers, you get like one notification a week. That's like you're like yearning for a notification and like one mention every three weeks. And Nowadays, I don't have a huge audience, but nowadays, like every time I look at my phone, there's a notification, which is like a bad thing because it's like addicting and dopamine. And I don't think it's great for your personal life and all that. So caveat emptor there. But there was another thread that I put just as much effort into. And the other person did not retweet it or retweeted it, but like just let it lie after one retweet. So Kobach just like, he just knew how to make it go. And then I'll just make one additional observation, which is the secret of a lot of these like tweet storms that I do, it's like, if you put in the effort to make someone else look good, they are going to circulate it. <laughs> like if it makes them look really great, they're going to circulate it as much as they can. And it, it turns out that like you can make someone look really good because if you take all of their tweets and summarize them into something that like makes it really cogent, it makes them look smarter than they are, but they are already smart. And you know, what I, you see the point I'm making, I think.
1: Right, great, great stuff. Cool, Justin. It's been a lot of fun. Where can people find you?
0: Yeah, uh, Twitter at J M I K O L A Y J MICOLAY. By the way, a lot of people call me Mikolay or Mikoloy. It's Mikolay with a long I. And uh, so at J Mikolay on Twitter. I also have a substack called Letter. Now it's called the Leadership Letter, but I need to really rebrand this thing. But the coolest part is the URL. I started Substack like a year ago, and well after a lot of people had newsletters. And the URL letter.substack.com was available. And the entire thing is a newsletter website. And I have no idea how letter was available. So anyway, that's my URL, letter.substack.com.
1: That's great. That's great. Cool. Thank you, Justin. It's fun. Really fun.
0: Thanks, Unique. This has just been a terrific conversation. Thanks for the invitation and thanks for taking time. You're welcome.
1: That's a wrap on this week's episode. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss our next show. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave an iTunes review and give us a shout out on Twitter, sharing your favorite part of this episode. See you again next week.